said that the biggest mistake that people in higher education can make is operating for the era in which you were founded 150 years ago, 200 years ago, rather than the era in which you currently exist, right? So we're, we're in love with our traditions. And I think if we can embrace the truth in higher education that we can... Welcome to Change Your Mindset Podcast, where it's all about believing in and executing on different and innovative ways to strengthen both your leadership and communication skills to help increase your success, and especially in today's disruptive business environment. One of the most effective ways of building stronger leadership and communication skills is by embracing the principles of improvisation. (laughs) Yes, that's right, improv. Your host, Peter Margaritas, is an improv virtuoso. He's also a certified speaking professional and a CPA, also known as the Accidental Accountant. Each episode of Change Your Mindset is designed to bring you different and innovative ideas, thoughts, and behavioral changes on a variety of differing topics, with the sole purpose of strengthening your critical soft skills. We may call them soft skills, but they are the hardest to master. And when we do, greater success and growth is the result. So jump in and start changing your mindset now. Let's start the show. Welcome to Change Your Mindset podcast, where we explore transformative ideas and strategies for personal and professional growth. Today, we have a special guest, Kate Colbert, who is an expert in telling powerful brand stories and leveraging data to drive meaningful change. She relentlessly focuses on facts and has helped numerous organizations achieve profitable growth and adapt to evolving market trends. As the president and founder of Silvertree Market Research, they bring a wealth of experience working with prestigious institutions and Fortune 500 companies in higher education, healthcare, and professional services. Their strategic storytelling and customer insights expertise has made them a sought after authority in the field. Kate is the author of Think Like a Marketer, How a Shift in Mindset Can Change Everything for Your Business, and co-authors of the recent book, Commencement, The Beginning of a New Era in Higher Education, which will be the focus of our discussion. So before we get to the interview, a few housekeeping items to take care of. Off Script, Master of the Art of Business Improv is available on Amazon in paperback and Kindle. If you want to learn more about the book or order a copy, go to offscriptimprov.com and order your copy by clicking the click to order button. If you want to buy 10 or more books, please contact me and I can offer you a bulk discount. You can reach me through my email at peter at petermargaritas.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Also, please visit my YouTube channel. Peter A. Margarita, CSP, CPA, Biz Improv Virtuoso, where you can see previous podcast video episodes along with this one. While there, just hit the subscribe button so you won't miss any updates. This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. Episode is sponsored by Peter A. Margaritas, LLC, also known as The Accidental Accountant. Are you looking for a speaker that can bring powerful content, virtually or in person or on site, that is memorable and engaging in a way that motivates and inspires your audience? Instead of data dumping and numbing with numbers, imagine your people and teams delivering a financial story to your stakeholders, a story that creates engaging and relationship-building business conversations. 
would you be interested in learning more about how that is accomplished? How would you feel if the value your facilitator provided your organization far exceeded the dollar amount on their invoice? Peter Margaritas, CPA and certified speaking professional, delivers all of the above and much, much more. All of Peter's programs can be done virtually, in person and on site at your location, or at an off site venue. Send Peter a note at peter at petermargaritas.com and or visit his website at www.petermargaritas.com to learn more about what Peter can bring to your next conference, management retreat, or workshop. Now, let's get to the interview with Kate Colbert. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Last time I saw Kate Colbert, the roles were reversed on this podcast because it was many months ago, just as my book off script had rolled off the presses and uh, Kate is my publisher. Uh, she interviewed me on my own podcast. So it's been a while since I've seen Kate and Kate's just published uh, Kate and her co-author, Joe. Um, last, say that again. Salustio. Salustio. And it's called Commencement, the Beginning of a New Era in Higher Education. So now that I'm back in the higher education world, I'm looking forward to this conversation. And first and foremost, hey, thank you so very much, because I know you're a busy lady. You're a very, very busy lady. So thank you for taking time out to be on uh, the podcast. Thanks. Of course. Thanks for having me. So I know you guys have, have a podcast, the Ed Up Podcast. So I think I remember you telling me this book kind of came out of some of the stuff that you guys were talking on the podcast. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So, it, you know, we always say first there was the podcast, then there was the book. Now there's a revolution. And so my co-author, Dr. Joe Salustio, who works inside higher ed, he's a VP at Lindenwood University. He and um, a colleague of his, um, named Elvin Freites, um, a few years ago, decided to start a higher education podcast called the Ed Up Experience Podcast. And they, you know, will readily admit they had no idea what they were doing, um, like many podcasters, do, <laughs> but they thought it would be important to, um, to have a some candid conversations. They did, had no idea how they'd get guests. They had no idea if they'd ever be able to get sponsors, all the things, right? And um, they started the podcast um, around, I believe, January 2020, having no idea that the world was about to come to a screeching halt. Yeah. And a really interesting thing happened is that as they were reaching out to higher education leaders and people outside of higher ed who have a stake in higher ed, so folks mm -hmm. like you know John Farrar, the you know head of education at Google. Um, they discovered that people were working from home and while the world was kind of upside down and colleges and universities were scrambling um, and some of them were were really innovating and some of them were uh, floundering, um, they found that people, for whatever reason, were just more comfortable stepping up to the mic and not necessarily checking in with their PR people before they did so. Mm. And so really quickly, they were able to get college and university presidents to start coming on to the show. Um, the first president was Scott Pulsifer at Western Governors University was the the, the first sort of victim. And <laughs> you know, within about a year and a half or maybe about two years, they had already interviewed 125 college and university presidents. To date, they're well over 200. And they just knew there was something, there was a book in there. And um, a mutual colleague of Joe's and of mine, who also has a connection to, you know, you had mentioned that I, I in addition to writing books, I own a publishing company and a strategic marketing company. And, and one of 
the authors, Eric Williamson, who wrote a book called How to Work with Jerks, um, Getting Shit Done with People You Can't Stand, which has <laughs> got to be one of the best book titles of all time, by the way. Absolutely. <laughs> Even if we do say it ourselves. Um, and, you know, he knew that that Joe thought there was a book um, in the insights from these college and university presidents. And so he introduced us and Joe gave me a call having no idea that I have a background having worked inside higher education and that I'm a higher education consultant. He thought I was just going to help them figure out how to like get the book to the marketplace mm -hmm. as a publisher. And so when he found out that I'm a best-selling author and that I have expertise in this industry and that I could actually co-author the book with him, he was just thrilled. He refers to me as the purple unicorn. That was exactly sort of who they were looking for. And so we decided what would it look like if we wrote a book about the future of higher education through the eyes of uh, the, that first 125 college and university presidents and really told the truth that this is a book. It does not read like a dissertation. It's fun. It's funny. It's snarky. It's inspiring. It's human. What does it look like to have a conversation that talks about not just the treasures in higher ed, but the troubles? Um, mm -hmm. We say that that commencement really is both a love letter to higher education because Joe and I really, really, really love this industry, but it is also a devil's advocate. And so we call out all of the things that we do in higher ed that don't work, all of the ways in which we're not serving our students and our learners as we ought to. Um, and really, we wanted to be able to, to say to all of you who work in, around, and on behalf of higher education, if you've never been able to say some of these things out loud, we'll say them for you. And here's the book. You can walk into a conference room and slam it on the table and say to your boss or your committee or whoever it is and say, damn it, it's right here in this book. And that here's examples of colleges and universities around the country or around the world that are doing the thing that we've been sitting on our hands about for years. It's time for us to try. And so we really want this book to give people that kind of support, um, as well as some inspiration and courage um, about what the future might look like in their career and at their college or university, too. So from a you know a 10,000 foot level, you've got me curious, what is the future of higher education? Because I, I know there's a lot there's a lot out there. And, and you know, I, I read a lot about it. I see a lot about it. But I'm curious. Yeah. What does so, the future look like? So what's interesting is that so I I have was very clear with Joe and Elvin um, when we started working on this book that had they not had the foresight to ask all of the presidents they interviewed on the podcast the same question at the end, I would not have taken on the Herculean task of going through all of the transcripts and listening to all the interviews to write this book and figure out what are the key themes. This was this was a gargantuan project. And the question they asked all of those presidents was at was at the very end of the the, the interview, they asked them all, what do you think the future of higher education looks like? And while we quote them from throughout their interviews, if they said something brilliant and interesting, that question really guided so much of, of the themes of commencement. And when you read this book, you'll be able to see where Joe and I stand on what the future looks like, um, just by how we sort of react to some of what's being said. And at the end, like all good books, right, the answers are in the back. Um, <laughs> we did write, <laughs> we did write an epilogue where we make our own predictions about the future of higher education. And and I think they come down to a handful of things. So you know, first of all, I think the future of higher education really hinges on partnerships and overlap between institutions. So it used to really be about institutions being best kept secrets and competing against the other college or university on the other side of town or on the other side of the state. Um, and for a variety of reasons, not the least of which there are just not enough undergraduate sort of traditional 18 to 22 year olds 
to fill all of the seats in colleges and universities right now. So there's an enrollment crisis underway, the admissions cliff. Um, it's time for colleges and universities to be thinking about how to meaningfully collaborate. And so that comes down to everything from working with your local K through 12 schools to make sure that you have really good sort of dual credit and dual enrollment programs for high school students at your college or university. It, it's about small to mid-sized colleges and universities who have expensive operating models, but not enough students and not enough sort of, you know, different sort of uh, revenue streams coming in to think about what if we merged with another college or university. So, you know, we've tons and tons of mergers I'm happening right now. 10 years ago, if we had dared to ask people, is your college or university thinking about a merger acquisition or strategic partnership to improve your viability uh, for the future, people would have thought it was a sacrilege to even ask that question. And the answer would have been no. When we did the research for this book, we actually did a uh, anonymous survey and um, anonymity really helped with the truth telling. 45% of higher education professionals said, yes, they are currently looking at uh, mergers, acquisitions um, or partnerships. And, and when they don't, unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of the small liberal arts, private types of institutions, particularly those that are religiously affiliating, announcing closures. So you've got the, you know, Casanova uh, College and the Cardinal Stritch here in my hometown. My husband's actually undergraduate alma mater. Cardinal Stritch just announced its closure. So they're having their graduation this month and then they're closing their doors. And so, so partnership is really, really critical. And it's not just partnerships between institutions of higher education or of education, um, but also partnerships between higher ed and industry. So really bringing back more apprenticeship models. What does it look like if you're a community college or a state institution to be able to partner with a, an institute, you know, a company? My my nephew is actually doing a program like this where he's learning automation, robotics, and, and mechatronics, and he's getting an associate's degree at the same time. He's getting paid to do this work as an apprentice, um, and when it's all over, he'll have a full time job and a bunch of money in the bank. And by the way, he paid no tuition and I'll have an associate's degree when he's done too. So these kind of creative um, partnerships where folks are coming out of college with a collegiate credential, but also some sort of industry recognized credential. So that's really huge, I think. Um, and there's just so much really treating students like the VIP customers that they are, reducing some of the friction of trying to attend college um, and giving back power. So I always talk about the fact that today's students, especially adult students, but really all students, you know, when you promise them like, oh, this degree is going to change your life, you know, students are looking at colleges and universities and they're saying, prove it, right? <laughs> prove it, right? So there used to be a power distance, I think, between colleges and universities and, and students of any age um, and any life stage, you know, just thought, well, you know, the website says that they're the best at whatever. And people sort of believed it. Um, and now people are going on to TikTok to watch day in the life videos to find out what's it really like at that university? What's it like to live there? What are the professors really like, et cetera? And students are saying, I have a real life. I'm a real human and I need you to meet me where I am. And so I want to be able to choose what I learn, when I learn, where I learn it, and how I learn it. And by the way, I want it to be flexible enough that if I want to be able to, or if something happens in my life and I was a face-to-face -face student and I want to be able to go hybrid or 100% online, and I need to do that in the middle of a semester, I don't want to lose any money. I don't want to lose any time. I don't want to have to sit and wait a semester and then come back. I want this to be a flexible learning experience. There are colleges and universities that do that and that do that well. And the ones that don't are starting to suffer because 
the students are are talking with their voting with their feet, right? So they're getting up and leaving. So I would say, you know, partnerships are huge. Affordability is as big as you might imagine. I'm doing a research project right now for a very prestigious institution that has no trouble attracting um, way more applications than they can ever um, admit. And yet, when we talk to their prospective students and we ask them what is the most important thing that goes into your decision, affordability is coming up number one, even from high talent, high income prospective students. And so affordability, accessibility, flexibility, diversity, belongingness, they all matter. Higher education has to figure out how to serve the real person um, and to do it in the way that that customer wants. So in that in that same thought process, where the term micro-credentialing has come up. And 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 yep. we're doing the communication center at School of Accounting at Oklahoma State, we're doing some micro-credentialing on the workshops that I'm putting out to, to prove to the employers that they have mastered at least some part of the skill set. But yep. I'm I'm hearing more and more about that. And, and even my son, who is ADHD, reading disorder, um, and he's going back, he didn't do well at first, so he's taking about three years off, but he's going back and working on a certificate or some type of that yep. micro-credentialing. And we hear the popularity of it. Did you guys address that in the book as well? Oh, yeah. It's a huge, it's actually a huge component of, of commencement as we talk about certificates and non-degree experiences. And we talk about stackable certificates that can add up to a degree, but we talk about the fact that the degree is not everything, right? And so I've always hated the phrase, you know, college is not for everyone or a degree is not for everyone. And because, I, you know, I ask and my co-author Joe asks all the time, you know, who the hell is it not for, right? You know, if, if it really is what we believe it is, if, if post-secondary education in all types, um, anything beyond high school, we want to continue learning and we all have a right to learn the things we want to learn, you know, so who is it not for? But the four-year degree, the two-year degree, it's arbitrary, right? It's arbitrary. You know, the Carnegie, you know, three-credit-hour unit, even the Carnegie, like, they even admit that it doesn't make any sense, right? The agrarian schedule, the summer's off, but, you know, mm -hmm. none of it makes sense. Um, and so we look a, a lot and we talked to college and university presidents a lot about, about shorter credentials and certificates. And you're absolutely right. Now, it's tricky. I would say most institutions don't know how to recruit learners for that. They don't know how to help learners understand sort of how to use that really well if they want that to then convert later to credits that be, can be used towards a degree. A lot of institutions don't know how to teach those learners how to sort of stack those credentials. But absolutely, I mean, one of my favorite institutions that I think is doing this really well is a brand new institution called Foundry College. And we interviewed their president, uh, um, Dr. Akiba Kovitz. Um, so this is a venture-backed community college, right? So totally different kind of thing. You go after venture capitalists and say, we're going to reinvent the way the community college works. Um, and, and they got that, that backing. And they are offering um, certificate programs that do what a certificate should do. And, and they do, frankly, what, what a degree ought to do as well. So a great example is they have a certificate program that I think, think takes about five months to get through. Um, and when you complete it, you will be um, certified to be a Salesforce administrator. And you get a, an academic certificate from Foundry College, but you get your Salesforce administrator uh, credential from Salesforce. And it's you know five or six months to get through. Um, and when you're done, you're going to be making, you know, $50,000 or more a year. Foundry is really interesting. So it was founded by a couple of guys from Harvard. 
um, who said, you know, that old school model just doesn't really work and it's not for everyone and it's not accessible to everyone. And, and so they said, what if we only did academic programs that rose to a particular sort of threshold? So they said, what if we only did programs that you could get two credentials coming out, something from us and Right. So maybe if you have a project management certificate, it, you also get PMP certified. Right. Mm -hmm. right. Um, so what does it look like if we you get multiple credentials, something industry recognized? What if we only educate people for jobs that we do not think will be eliminated because of automation um, in the next 20 years? What if we only educate um, for positions that are going to make at least fifty thousand dollars starting um, straight out of the, that experience? And what if we only educate for careers where people could do that career from a remote location, they could work from home. And so that's that's sort of like their litmus test as they're developing academic programs at Foundry College. And it's really fascinating. And by the way, if you can't afford to pay for it now, do the program. And when you're done and you get that job, then you can pay for it and it doesn't cost anymore. And so they've really started to take a look at, and there are a lot of schools like this, you know, GCAS College in Dublin doing really interesting things where the students actually learn or earn crypto, their sort of proprietary cryptocurrency they can use to pay down their tuition. And when they graduate, they become part owners of the college. And so this sort of old school model is really changing. Um, now, the big question is, okay, do we understand what a certificate means if I'm an employer? And that's tricky, right? But right now there are employers like Google, for example, that when they're hiring their own people, they consider a Google certificate equivalent to a bachelor's degree. Mm. And so, you know, it'll be interesting to see over time, if over time, a lot of people are getting these micro-credentials, if at some point then having a bachelor's degree becomes a differentiator again. And then if the value of the bachelor's degree sort of cycles back up to the top. But just yesterday, I heard about a really cool um, program. I took this pledge about um, tearing the paper ceiling. And it's about this concept of about the seven, I think it's about 70 million workers in the United States right now um, have alternative credentialing. Um, and they're called, they call those STARS. They're skilled, this is an acronym, skilled through alternative routes. And so they, you know, they either, they have a, they were trained by the military or they have a certificate and something. Um, and those folks and a lot of is institutions that are hiring are not getting considered against the people who have bachelor's degrees or they're not they don't have the, you know, the benefit of an alumni network that will you know, make some phone calls for them. Mm -hmm. And so what does it look like for us to sort of say this paper ceiling, we're just going to rip it all up and say, if you are skilled, if you have the competencies to do the job that we're hiring you to do, we don't care what route by which you earned those that ability to have those skills, those competencies. We just want to know, can you do the job? And so we talk about that pretty significantly um, in the book. Um, and uh, yeah, for a woman who has a lot of college degrees of her own, I am actually no apologist um, for the former, you know, the formal sort of two-year or four-year degree. I don't think it's everything. As, as you're talking, I remember mean, this disruptive nature in higher ed. And yeah. we've got new people coming and thinking, but... <laughs> Higher ed, I, the analogy people used to tell me over the years, higher ed, to get I higher ed to change, it's probably easier to have a battleship, an aircraft carrier, turn on a dime. Right. It is, it is, it, they're very slow to market. 
Well, yeah, no, and it's it's true, and yet it doesn't have to be true. And it's one of the things we talked about a lot during the research for commencement is we would ask people and we would talk about that. You know, why are we so slow? So the pandemic was a really great proof point, right? So during the pandemic, when it was like, oh my gosh, you know, we're we're looking at life and death. How do we keep our students alive? Not, mm -hmm. you know, just right. give them an education. And suddenly decisions needed to be made quickly where institutions were closing their doors and moving face-to-face -face programs 100% online and they had five days to do it, right? right? And a really interesting thing happened. And we have an entire chapter in the book called Pandemic as Panacea. And it's all about the lessons we learned during the pandemic. But we discovered that when forced to do so, higher education of all kinds and at all levels is perfectly capable of being profoundly less bureaucratic, of being quick, of making student-centered decisions, of not having to run everything through three committees, you know, before you can do anything. The work got done and it got done quickly. Now, sadly, a lot of institutions have gone back to their old ways of business, but the ones that haven't are 10 steps ahead of everyone else. And so that has been really interesting. You know, when we talk to um, John Porter, the president at Lindenwood University, so he is one of many college and university presidents these days that did not come up through the old way of becoming a, an academic president. You know, it used to all be, you were a faculty member and then you were a department chair and then you were, you know, a dean and then a provost and, a, you know, vice president or eventually, you know, you were looking at a presidency. You know, he came from IBM. <laughs> and there are, by the way, when we were making sure we had the lists of all of our presidents accurate for our book, it was fascinating how many of them did not have PhDs or EDDs, but were, you know, MBAs or had a bachelor's degree or had a, a Juris Doctor degree. Um, so lots of really smart business people and really good decision makers and people who are open to new ways of thinking and new models. Um, and, you know, John Porter at Lindenwood said, because people said the same thing to him when they, he told his friends and colleagues that he was going to go work in higher ed. And they're like, oh, boy, it's painfully slow. And, and he said, why does it? It doesn't have to be like higher education can be as nimble as any other institution. And to be fair, you know, I've worked on the inside as you're mm -hmm. doing now. I understand that those there's weird cultural trappings, but structurally, there is no reason higher education can't move as quickly. In fact, in most colleges and universities, even if they're part of a big system, they're still smaller than a Fortune 500 company. And so they should be able to be more nimble. Um, and so this, the institutions that are moving quickly and making decisions really quickly, I, they're going to continue to win the day. And so um, I also think we have a lot of excuses in higher ed, right? But that's how we've always done it. Um, and, you know, one of the things we talk about in the book that seems to really resonate with people is we had said really early on, I think it's even like on the, one of the first or second pages of the book, was we had said that the biggest mistake that people in higher education can make is operating for the era in which you were founded 150 years ago, 200 years ago, rather than the era in which you currently exist, right? So we're, we're in love with our traditions. And I think if we can embrace the truth in higher education, that we can honor the past. We can say, hey, all those previous scholars and presidents and students and what how they did things around here 75 years ago or 200 years ago, that was important and it was special and we honor that. But upon that storied past, we're going to build or layer on this really um, sort of ambitious future. And here's what that looks like. And so you can be incredibly different today and tomorrow and 10 years from now than you were 100 years ago. And frankly, you know, again, I'm watching a lot of colleges and universities announce their closures. And every time I see it happen, um, I'm angry, actually, because 
those institutions didn't have to close. They could have been modern. They could have made tough business decisions about mergers or serving, you know, student populations they don't currently serve. Um, so moving slowly will ultimately not just put schools in peril. It will put them out of business if they don't stop it. So another topic I want to know if you guys discussed in this book, because you've kind of skirt, not skirted around it. That's not, but you've, <laughs> you've, you've, you've alluded to it in a number of ways, but you mm -hmm. haven't said the word. Did you guys discuss tenure? Hmm. In the so book? That's, an interesting, that's an interesting question. We didn't go into it in specific detail, but we did share a couple of stories, right? So I think I, I shared a story of feeling like that the world had shifted. So I serve on the president's leadership council for a private liberal arts college. And I'll never forget the day that I found out that they fired some tenured faculty. And, and I thought, well, this is like, in higher ed, this is the thing that's never happened, right? It's the thing that everyone believes can't happen, right? Right. Um, but there's this this possibility that you have, like, you know, you're immune, it's your invisibility cloak or whatnot, you know, that if you have tenure, you know, you have a job forever, even if you're not good at it, or even if they don't need you. And, you know, a lot of colleges and universities have really started looking, and sadly, they usually wait until it's really painful in terms of what their financials look like. Mm -hmm. And they're taking a look and saying, listen, if we've only got six kids who are coming into our institution to major in Latin, we don't need a whole Latin department. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, so maybe we need one Latin professor and that that department can be absorbed into another department. And mm -hmm. so and so there's a lot of that. And we're seeing a lot of sort of standalone academic departments at colleges and universities merging into larger departments or, or sort of schools. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, really sort of slimming down some of the leadership and yes, seeing a fair amount go away. Interestingly, I've always been a huge fan of the, um, I guess business isn't always the right word, but business leader faculty, right? Practical faculty, people, mm -hmm. if you're going to be teaching accounting, um, I want, I want to take accounting from somebody who actually, you know, heads up an accounting department at a company during the day and then comes and teaches us, you know, on the evenings or weekends mm -hmm. or whatever that looks like. And they can be talking about how it really works. Um, mm -hmm. So my MBA program um, had all business leader faculty. Um, so no full-time faculty, no tenure track, none of that. Um, I happen to think that that's a brilliant model. And I think students get a really great experience when you can get the practical, not just the theoretical. There are people I have background in marketing. I can't tell you how many marketing professors I have met in my work in higher education who have literally never run a marketing department inside of a company. And I don't understand that. And so, but tenure is a, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a touchy topic. Um, but I think right now in higher ed, everything is up for grabs. If making changes is to the benefit of the institution long-term and if it's to the benefit of the learners. And at the end of the day, it really does come down to the customer. Uh, two quick things. Um, my former university, uh, Liberal Arts College in Columbus, Ohio, they fired tenured faculty yep. a few years ago. Um, and I went, I didn't think that could happen. Well, how did they, how did they yeah. do that? But, it, but they're, they're, yeah, a university does have to make business decisions. Exactly. And two, I think Oklahoma State does a really good job with this. I'm a non-tenure track faculty. So yep. they, they call us professors of professional practice. Yep. And part of our role is to bring the real world into the classroom and make exactly. it real make it real for the students. And it does and it does free up time for some of the faculty who are heavily researched that they don't have to spend as right. much time in the classroom that they can do the research. Yeah. But it's it's and 
And to the point of, I had a business before I got there. Yeah. My, my speaking business, my consulting business, my coaching business. Part of my, instead of me doing research. Yeah. They want me out still speaking in front of my clients. And, and now it. I'm a representative of Oklahoma State University. And right. it, they, yeah. meet that, they meet that need. And there's, there's a few of us right. in the School of Business, Spirit School of Business, who still have businesses that we run now more or less on the side, but we're encouraged to do that. That's brilliant. And that's to the benefit of the institution, as well as to the students, as well as to the, the faculty body. So, you know, it's interesting, you know, I don't know if you heard the news, but just recently um, it was in the news that, uh, you know, so usually when you when you're up for tenure and you've been told you've been approved, right, and, you know, and then it's sort of a done deal at this point. Well, you know, nothing is for sure anymore, right? So we've got all of this sort of ugliness going on at, at New College in Florida, right? Where the New College was essentially, well, I shouldn't say essentially, there was just a hostile takeover of New, uh, New College of mm -hmm. Florida, right? Where, you know, um, where the governor came in, installed all of his cronies onto their board, and then they ousted their president and brought um, one of DeSantis's um, friends sort of in as the president. So they just had folks coming into a board meeting who were up for tenure and had been told they'd been approved. And in the past at that institution, as is the case at many institutions, the, the, the board of directors sort of blessing those tenure appointments is perfunctory, right? You walk mm -hmm. in, it's going to happen. They say, congratulations, somebody hits a gavel, it's done. The I think it was five or six faculty members who were um, about to be approved walked in and the board just said, you know, we've got a lot going on and a lot of change and this just isn't a good time. And they denied a faculty. They denied tenure to several faculty members who had already been promised that their faculty. And then, you know, they were doing the work, the research, writing the books, all the things yeah. that they thought they had to do in order to sort of pass muster for for tenure. So things have really, really changed um, in a lot of ways. But no, I'm I'm thrilled to see institutions um, willing to let that go. I think a great story for anyone who has not followed it is to take a look at um, what Malik Peter Corey has done out at what was called Unity College in, in Maine. It's now called Unity Environmental University. They were a small private institution. This is the kind of place that you go if you, it's environmental. So it's where you go if you want to be a game warden, right? But they're in this remote little area um, in Maine. They had 700 and some students. They're an institution that's about 50 years old, I think. Um, and their enrollment was dropping. Um, and it's really hard to run an institution, you know, with less than a thousand students or even less than 5,000 students, frankly. Um, and so the pandemic really spurred them to realize there are a lot of people around the United States and beyond that we could educate who want the education that we have but we can't expect people to all pick up and move to this remote area of maine so what does it look like if we do more online and hybrid mm -hmm. programs so they told their faculty we're going to have you work with instructional designers and we're going to start converting your mm -hmm. courses to make them really pedagogically sound for online engagement as well and the faculty freaked out oh. um, i don't know that they all did but many of them freaked out and as i understand it um, many of them were let go i think some of them that had tenure um, and there ended up being this like class action lawsuit and it got uglier and uglier and the leadership at that institution was making decisions to the benefit of that institution's brand long term and they withstood the pain and they withstood the noise and all the local ugly mm. front page news articles etc fast forward three years now they no longer have 700 students they have i think 6200 wow and when that president, um, Dr. Corey, who was in our book, um, read commencement, 
He took to LinkedIn and said, reading commencement has kind of inspired me to tell our institution's full story lately of what's been happening here. Mm. And he told the unvarnished truth about the angry faculty, mm. and the ugly PR and whatnot, and where they are. And one of the very first comments on that LinkedIn thread was from the daughter of the original founder of Unity College, who said to their current president, if my father were alive today, he would be so grateful to you for saving our school. Mm. And so there are a lot of stories like this of mm. colleges and institutions really meeting the moment and delivering in new ways to new modern learners on the promise of education. But we have to be willing to change. So let's go back to new college real quick. Uh, yeah. I, actually, I heard that story last week, but they didn't know, could, could remember the name of the school or whatever. Yeah. kind of So, OK, that, that puts that in place. Now, is new college... In the Tampa, Sarasota area, do you know? Oh, I should really know. I'm not positive. But what's okay. interesting about them is that they're small, but they're a public institution, which is is why the state has been able to have so much. Um, they're, they're liberal arts, but they're public liberal arts, which is kind of a unique sort of model. Um, and so that's, you know, that's definitely something that's going on right now um, in various pockets of the United States is, you know, we've many of us who work in higher ed believe in this sort of concept of, uh, you know, sort of academic freedom, right? And the mm -hmm. faculty can sort of teach the way they want to and whatnot, and that institutions can educate as long as it's within the standards of their accrediting bodies, you know, acc accrediting um, standards, that you can kind of have your own flavor to how you run your institution. And, um, but now, you know, politicians are wanting to, you know, sort of assert sort of their will um, at, at various institutions, state schools, public schools. And so things are getting a little weird right now, <laughs> for, for lack of a better term. That's a, it's an interesting time. I think a buddy of mine um, uh, who's in Jacksonville, I think his son graduated from New College. That's why I really perked oh, me up. So, I, yeah. so I'm, I'm going to have to get I'm going to visit him next month. Well, and the graduates is a huge part of it. I think we sometimes forget that, you know, the brand, you know, whether or not people think a school is a good school, whether or not people think a school is prestigious, whether or not they want their kids, their grandkids, their neighbors, the students they teach at their K-12 school, whatever, to apply mm -hmm. to an institution is really based on, you know, the, the alumni. And a lot of institutions aren't taking really great care of their alumni. And the ones who are, interesting things are happening, right? So when we were in the middle of writing commencement, University of Phoenix announced that they were going to start offering career services for life for all their alumni. Now imagine, now you want help writing a resume, you want help finding a job, you want interview skill practice, all these things for a million alumni. And they said, we'll provide it, right? So, so these types of so unprecedented things are happening. Meanwhile, I have degrees from institutions that don't even have a director of alumni relations anymore. Um, oh, really? So there are institutions where you can go to their website and you can't find a way to engage as an alum um, and some that, you know, nonprofits that you can't even figure out how to make a donation if you wanted to. So a lot of things are shifting, um, you know, in a lot of ways. Some of it, I think, you know, for good and some of it, um, you know, maybe not great decisions. But I think right now we're in a place where in the past, I think we were naive enough, and, and I I say this of myself, it's not a criticism of the marketplace. I always thought, you know, you could go to, you find a college that's a good fit for you, you know, and if you can afford it, it's the right school. Well, there are a lot of institutions that are in peril right now. And so right now it's really is, 
you need to be looking at whether or not an institution is viable. So, you know, we're having this conversation here in early May. Um, so a couple of days ago, it was May Day, right? So it was sort of national sort of commit day um, for, for college, uh, for incoming college students to choose which school they're going to accept an, an uh, enrollment at. And I was watching a lot of my friends because I'm, I'm 49. So I have a ton of friends who have kids all headed off to college or already at college. And they're all announcing, you know, I'm so excited. Here's a picture of my kid at our tour at XYZ institution. And for kicks, I decided to pull up the iPads data and sometimes even the audited financials off those universities' websites and take a look. And it's heartbreaking for me to know that I have friends who have worked their tails off to save money to send their kids to college. And they chose colleges where enrollment has been declining for eight years, year over year, where their graduation rate is 64% um, and where the financials are just abysmal. These institutions that will not make it if they do not do something big um, right now. And most of them are just not in a position to do that. So again, it, you know, you think about the bank, you know, I think about sort of your expertise in accounting and finance, you know, when Silicon Valley Bank, you know, we started seeing things, banks closing, right? I think as adults, there are two things we never thought could happen. We've never worried that our bank might go out of business. And right. we've never thought that our own college or our kids' college might go out of business. And yet those things are happening. And so I think it's a real um, eye-opener. I don't want to sound all gloom and doom. Higher education in the United States was overbuilt. We do not need multiple institutions in one town. You know, not every town needs a state university, a private university, and a community college, right? Mm -hmm. And now that we don't have enough people, um, even if a huge percentage of the 40 million Americans who have some college but no degree did decide they wanted to go back to finish a degree, we still have big changes underway. And so as I watch all these small little schools close, my heart breaks for their alumni, my heart breaks for those staff and faculty, the towns that were built around them, et cetera. Um, that stinks. But I do believe higher education is right-sizing itself. Um, and I do think that the institutions that are creating the right partnerships and mergers and acquisitions and, and new education systems are going to come out stronger for it. And I think as a whole, I think the higher education industry is actually getting better and better. So for all the tough stuff that we talk about in our book and all the, the critical things um, that we can talk about, I love higher education. I think it matters. I think it's important. Um, if I had children, I would be encouraging them um, to pursue formal post-secondary education in, in some form um, and would be supporting that significantly. So the change is painful. You talked about disruption a minute ago. And I always remind people that disruption is not just disruptive for your competitor. If you're doing something really innovative or something big, it's disruptive to you too. Like it hurts. It's painful. Other Change is hard, um, but important change needs to happen in higher education. And it's happening, some of it by choice, some of it by force. Um, ultimately, I think all of it for good. Well, it's, you know, you and I both know very well that when you go through change, you institute the change and there's this <laughs> cliff that just goes yep. straight down. And at some point you hit that bottom or whatever, yep. and then things begin to move and begin to move up and, and then that changes. But you yep. go through about 18 to two years yep. worth of pain in order to get to the other side. Yeah. And if you can hold on, it's about holding on. And I think for a lot of, play, a lot of, segments of the, the the higher ed market right now, people just are holding on. I actually had a professor in my MBA program. I think he may have even written a book by this topic, but he always talked about this, this concept that everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. And he right. meant exactly what you're talking about, Peter. 
that everybody wants to get to the other side. Everyone wants to have founded a really successful business. Everyone wants to work for an institution that is doing the latest and greatest thing that's really popular and that's attracting tons of money and attention. But nobody wants to go through that painful slump of when you shut off something, right? And then you then build. And that's exactly what's happening in higher ed. So in order to um, sunset academic programs that are no longer in demand, um, it, that's painful, right? Mm -hmm. I worked for a medical a sciences institution where our new leadership came in and said, listen, if you're a bench scientist and you're trying to, you know, cure, you know, type one diabetes or whatnot, that's awesome. And we're thrilled to have you here, but we cannot give you tuition dollars from, you know, MD students <laughs> or podiatry students or, you know, healthcare management students in order to do that research, if it's important research, go get a grant from the NIH or somewhere else, but mm -hmm. you have to be bringing in your own funding. And we went through the very painful process when I was at that university of shutting down massive research projects because they were unfunded and we couldn't, you know, and that's actually a big thing right now. So if you take a look at what's happening in a lot of colleges and universities, they'll say that there's, they've increased um sort of unfunded, you know, um, grants by um, $20 million. And what that means is, is that, you know, that's just institutions lowering their price tag over lower and lower and lower for tuition in order to get enough students to come in. And so they're not really scholarships that are funded. It's, it's tuition discounting, right? Mm -hmm. And tuition discounting is huge right now. Last yeah. year's average tuition discount for a private liberal arts college in the United States was 54%. Yeah. So their sticker price on their website says it's $40,000. Most students are paying more like 18000 too. And what college uh, college and, and university student parents don't understand is that those discounts are not offered automatically. You, you got to negotiate for it. And mm -hmm. so, you know, there's just, it's a new time. It's definitely, I, I think we got that part right for sure um, in subtitling our book, you know, that we really are at the beginning of a new era in higher education. education. So, Let's wrap this up because we could you I because we're gonna come back and revisit this again because yeah, this is a, this is a fascinating story and uh, we're gonna do it sooner than later. But most importantly, how can people find the book and find you? Thank you very much. So the book is called Commencement: The Beginning of a New Era in Higher Education. It is sold everywhere books are sold, but the easiest way to find it is on Amazon. You can learn more about the book and about bulk discounts if you want your entire staff, faculty, or, or others to be reading it at commencementthebook.com. And I encourage you to connect with me, Kate Colbert, and my co-author, Dr. Joe Salustio, on LinkedIn. Perfect. So I'm I'm fascinated. I can't wait to get my copy of it and and. Autographs, absolutely, <laughs> and be and commenced into reading it. Um, it's, and it's it's a it's a thin book. It's only five hundred pages or something like that. Right, exactly. So so Derek Newton at Forbes um, wrote wrote a piece on us, and he opened the piece with a line that we use now every time we stand up in front of an audience. Derek Newton, when he received his copy of Commencement in the mail and and picked up this two pound. Um, a package thought that an angry reader had sent him a brick. Um, but as much as it is a, a big book, it's actually full of infographics and um, lots of white space. And it's really fun. It's very conversational. And um, it is uh, easy to read and hard to put down. And that's a promise. Perfect. I can't wait. To, I can't wait to pick it up. And who did the cover? Uh George Stevens. <laughs> Got to give a shout out to George Stevens. Yeah, George Stevens. Oh, it's actually, yeah, we've done some beautiful covers in our day and um, um, in love with this cover. So, yeah. 
It's a great cover. Well, great. Well, thank you so very much. And maybe our paths will be crossing soon. Uh, if you're doing anything at NSA or uh, somehow we got to. I'll find you. Invite me to come speak at your campus. Better yet. Let me, let me, let me help you work on that. Thank you. Deal. Deal. Perfect. All right. Thank you so very much. And great seeing you. You too. I would like to thank Kate for sharing her knowledge and stories of this evolving era in higher education. And always remember, there are people who prefer to say yes, and there are people who prefer to say no. Those who say yes are rewarded by the adventures they have, and those who say no are rewarded by the safety they attain. Be a yes person, and thank you for listening. Like what you just heard, visit c-suiteradio.com. C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.